On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know from where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Convict us of our sins. Encourage us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to put on the new man as the Apostle Paul puts it. To put these things into practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, who doesn't like to go to a wedding? Now, there may be some of you who don't like it so much. Maybe children, you're like, well, I don't like the wedding so much, but I do like the reception because there's cake and cookies and all sorts of good things. But uh, most of us enjoy going to a wedding, especially if it's a dear friend or family member. That's the time at which two people, a man and a woman, come together and are joined in holy matrimony, as we put it. They're made one flesh, and uh, they spend, theoretically, their lives together as husband and wife. It is, for many, the most uh, beautiful and memorable and joyous day of their lives. And, of course, Jesus takes the opportunity to uh, perform the first recorded miracle in John at a wedding, a wedding in Cana, as we are taught. And uh, the miracles of Christ, remember, served a purpose, at least one, if not several purposes. They were like badges. A police officer today holds up a badge, and it shows that he is who he says he is, that he is an officer, he is here to enforce the law. Well, Jesus holds up these badges, and they're miracles, and they say to others who he is. That he says he is. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. His Father is the Heavenly Father. And these miracles of Jesus, as we'll see in John's Gospel, they not only tell us more about Jesus himself, but they tell us more about the kingdom that he came to bring. And so as we think about this uh, today, I want to present two headings to us. Uh, We'll talk about the particulars of this wedding, and then a little later we'll talk about the significance of this wedding here in Cana of Galilee. And so let's talk about uh, what John presents to us here in the text. 
So first of all, we have the scene. We have uh, its location there in verse 1. The third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Um, Scholars and commentators, they talk about where this Cana was located. And many of them just say, well, there were probably several, if not three or so, around this area. And this is the one in Galilee. And that's all we know about it. And I think that's the case. And so John tells us it's on the third day. And it could have been that was the third day of the week, which would make it Tuesday, because Sunday is the first day of the week. Or, if you study what John has been doing in chapter 1, he's been talking about the days of John the Baptist, his ministry, and then the days when Christ arrives on the scene. So it could have been uh, the third day after Christ called his first disciples. And if that's the case, this would make it Wednesday. And Wednesday, according to rabbinic and Jewish law, was the day on which a virgin was to get married. A widow was to get married on a different day. And so the latter is probably the case. And here we find them in in this really uh, obscure town of Cana of Galilee on Wednesday, perhaps getting married or sharing their uh, celebration with family and friends. And so um, really this is what would seem to be an insignificant town as we'll see, an insignificant couple and family and guests of this this wedding. It is held, no doubt, in a a village in Cana. And so who was there? Well, Jesus was there. We're told that in the text. Jesus' mother Mary was there. Uh, Jesus' disciples were there, probably those whom he just had called in chapter 1. Two of his disciples came with him. And Jesus and Mary were invited. And so they are there. Also, no doubt, the the groom and his bride were there. Their friends and family were there. And you need to know something of weddings in biblical times. It was a major event in the life of those getting married and their families. Um, The ceremony was perhaps not so long, but the feast and the occasion, the celebration would have lasted, in some cases, a week. And so they would, at night, have this feast, and uh, the bride and groom would sit like king and queen, and whatever they wanted, uh, it was given to them, it was brought before them. So they would have the torches flaming, and they would be rejoicing and feasting and drinking wine and and perhaps some sort of cake. I don't know what they had back then. But uh, part of the processional was that um, you know the, the bridegroom would be led to his bride's family uh, by torch at night with his wedding party. It was a major ordeal. And yet here this seems to be uh, the lower class of society. We aren't told of any rank or office that any of them held. It was in this seemingly obscure town of Cana. But this was a joyous, Occasion, probably one that they would never, ever forget. And so Jesus attends this wedding. But as we see, something went wrong. And uh, that is brought to Jesus' attention in verse 3 by Mary, his mother. It says, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And some seem to think that Mary was a... um, uh, 
a worker in this wedding or that she was closely related to those in the party. We don't know, but she has a, a watchful eye. She's paying attention and she brings this to Jesus' attention. Now, why would she do that? I think she did this because she knows there's something special about her son. I mean, he was born of a virgin, first of all. She was told that. And in Luke chapter 1, there are many things said about her son who would be born to her. And in Luke 1, 33, or 31 rather, it says this. The angels are talking to her and they say, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and he shall, or rather you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And it goes on. So she knows that he is the son of the highest. She may be his earthly mother, but he is the son of God. And of course, as we know from John chapter 1, he is the God-man. He is divine, he is human, two natures joined together inseparably in one person. So she turns to him and she says to him, they've run out of wine. So she knows where to go. And... uh, as we're talking about this wine, let me just state briefly that I have no doubt this was real wine, as in alcoholic wine, uh, perhaps not very strong, but uh, just you need to know that after the temperance movement, not long ago in the 1800s, a guy by the name of Welsh, a dentist in Vineland, New Jersey, figured out how to make grape juice, okay, because what would happen before that time, even during the temperance movement, they could just pull the grapes, mash, mash the juice out of it, and store it. Because if you just store it without fridge or refrigerators that came in like 1913, um, it's going to ferment in storage. And often, even in biblical times, it would ferment on the vine. And it was a very hot climate. It is, of course, today, and arid and so forth. And, and so fermentation was unavoidable in biblical times. And they would often dilute the wine with water. So it would go farther and it wouldn't be as strong. But what was the dilemma here? Because they did run out of wine. Mary's concerned about it. Well, there are several things going on. Um, Wine was associated with feasting and joy in those days, and especially during a wedding festival. Uh, The rabbis would say, without wine, there is no joy. Um, Hospitality, as they are showing here, was a sacred duty in their culture. And also, I mean, this would prove to be a social embarrassment for the the bride and the groom and their families. People would say, you know, they're they're the ones they ran out of wine at their wedding. And uh, having wine at the wedding was like having the bouquet in weddings today or the wedding ring in our ceremonies today. So Mary's watchful. She knows to turn to Jesus. She does. And if you look there in verse 4... Um, He says to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So first of all, he calls her woman. That might seem disrespectful to us. It was not disrespectful on the part of Jesus. Because um, he's going to talk to the woman at the well. In John 4, he's going to say woman. He's going to talk to her in that way. This was common back then. In fact, in John 27, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he entrusts the care of his mother to John and he says to her or about her, he calls her woman. 
And so this, this is not a derogatory or disrespectful term. I mean, Jesus is sinless, right? He obeyed the fifth commandment. He honored his mother. And then he says there, what does your concern have to do with me? That's a difficult phrase in the original Greek. Uh, and then he says, my hour has not yet come. What is, what is his point? My hour has not yet come. And he, he doesn't say mother. Well, his hour is the hour of his death at Calvary. And so Jesus will talk about this throughout his ministry as he makes that long trek with his disciples, eventually alone up to the hill where Calvary's cross would stand. And he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Finally, he will say, my hour has come. And so he's talking to his mother and he's indicating to her that she has to see him in a different light now. He's starting his earthly ministry as Messiah. His office as Messiah. So she must now look at him not only as her son, but as her Lord. That's what's going on. He's indicating, he's giving her this clue that things are changing now. And so what will he do? In verses 6 and 7 we find out he's going to perform this miracle. Verse 6, we're told by John, there were six water pots of stone. According to the manner of purification of the Jews, it was their practice to wash their hands. Of course, to wash their feet, as you know, that area, again, was dirty, um, meaning very dry, and there was dirt everywhere. I've lived in a place like that before where the dirt gets inside of your home. It's so dusty. And uh, when these people would walk around on the, you know, on the streets and have their sandals, their feet got dirty. They could, they could have gotten muddy. So they would take their sandals off and their feet would be washed by the servants. There's that. There's also the, the man of purification. They were to wash their hands before eating and sometimes in between courses and that sort of thing. And there was at least 120 gallons of this water at this residence. And so what does he do? Verse 7, it says that he said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Why does John say that? Why does he know they filled it up to the brim. Because we have here the legitimacy, the reality of this miracle, validation of this miracle, because there was no room just to put a little wine in there. It was full of water. It was only water. And Jesus said, fill the pots with water. So they did to the brim. Verse 8 And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And so what is what is happening? Well, by his omnipotence, his power, his all encompassing power, Jesus turned this water into wine. And by the way, just. For those who may struggle out of conscience sake sometimes or know some people who do, um, this isn't so much a sermon about wine, but it's here and there's significance about the wine. So let me just say, um, if you look at the verse or the word there in, um, oh, where is it? In verse 
10 at least, where it said you kept the good wine until now. Um, the water was made wine there in verse 9. Uh, the word in the original is oinon. That means fermented wine. It's the same Greek word used in Ephesians 5.18 where it says do not be drunk with what? Oinon. Wine. It's fermented wine. And so we need to acknowledge that, and we also need to acknowledge that the Bible gives plenty of warnings when it comes to alcohol. Um, In fact, one theological dictionary of the Old Testament says that wine was the most intoxicating drink in Old Testament times, but just consider this clearly, or um, briefly. Proverbs 31, verse 4, it says that alcohol impairs our judgment, or that it can. It says it's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes to drink. Uh, intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law. Proverbs 23, verse 29, asks this question. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? You know, fights. The bar fight. The brawl. Um, Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? I know people who have been drunk and have wounds without cause. Redness of eyes. Those who linger at the wine. They can't leave the bar. In Romans 14, 21, it talks about Christian liberty there, that uh, those who are stronger in the faith do have the right to drink this wine. There are some who choose not to. And so we're to use discretion. It says Romans 14, 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine if it causes your brother to stumble. You know, those things sacrificed to idols and so forth. Ephesians 5.18 forbids drunkenness. Drunkenness is sin. The Bible does give us permission to drink it. Titus 2.3, it says, Just as those who aspire to the office of elder are not to be given to wine, so too are the older women in the church not to be given to too much wine. And so Romans 14.23 says, Whatever is not of faith is sin. If, If you have heard what I've said, about the the biblical data concerning wine, and you still struggle with it, if you cannot drink of it in faith, saying to yourself, this is God's gift, then that's sin. Whatever's not a faith is sin. You have to do it. Do it thinking God has given it to you, and He approves. Otherwise, you're doing something you you think God disapproves of, and, and that, in principle, is sin. And at the same time, if if wine causes us to sin, Jesus tells us what to do with whatever causes us to sin, right? Matthew 5 and verse um, 40, I think it is, verse 30. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, take it, throw it far from you. And so if you struggle with alcohol and drunkenness, you don't mess mess with it. You don't touch it. And if you do partake to the glory of God, you consider those people when you do. As Romans 14 says, 23 says, and so don't judge, don't condemn, and don't sin when it comes to wine. And yet, as the Bible presents to us, wine is a blessing. It is a gift from God to His people. This is very important. In Genesis 27, we find Isaac with wine. In 1 Samuel 1, we find Hannah offering fermented wine to the Lord as a sacrifice to the Lord. In Psalm 104, verse 15, it says, The Lord who gives wine, it says this, He makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. 
And so God gives wine that makes glad the heart of man. And so just as food can be abused and become an, um, a means of sin, such as gluttony, so too can alcohol be abused and be a means of sin, drunkenness. Now, let's look at the greater picture here because there is a reaction or two uh, to this miracle that Jesus performs turning water into wine. So what happens? Well, we see that the master, verse 9, of the feast, he tasted the water that was made wine and didn't know where it came from. The servants knew. And so the master, the end of verse 9, calls uh, the bridegroom. And this is what he says in verse 10. Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. And so the idea was, in those days, you had the best of the best. It's costly, it's expensive perhaps. So you move that out front, you put that on the tables first because people have a clean palate and they can really taste the wine. And those who really know, they really know. And those of us who don't, we just say that's good, good wine. Then there's the not so good wine. And once people have well drunk, their taste buds have a layer of, you know, just grape juice on them and they've eaten other food. Perhaps they've had too much to drink. Then you bring, bring out the, the not-so-good wine. Because you have more of that, and it goes a long way. Perhaps you've watered it down even more. But in this case, the servant and the master of the feast, he says that the bridegroom has kept the good wine until you've saved the best for last. And so he's surprised. And so Jesus then gives his gift to, to this couple. The gift of wine. He saves them from social embarrassment. And he brings joy. He keeps joy. Truly, joy came to this house. And joy's name is Jesus. That's what we need to remember as we see that. Now let's talk more about the significance of what Christ has done at this wedding. Um, who is it that is brought front and center in this account? Is it the bride? The bridegroom? Maybe it's Mary. You know, Mary, maybe she's the one we're to look at, right? Some people would say that still today. No. Maybe it's the family. We don't even know the family's name. We don't know the bride's name. We don't know the groom's name. Where's Joseph? Perhaps he's died and gone to heaven. Many think that. There are other indications maybe he didn't, but he's not there. It's Christ. It's the Lord Jesus. He is the one we are to see. Imagine you're at your wedding. The spotlight is on you and your spouse now. And then there's this person there and all of the glory now shines upon him. Well, if it's Jesus, I don't think you're going to argue with that. Because that's why He is here. He is here to be glorified. And He is here to bring glory to His Heavenly Father. And so He is the one who comes to the forefront. So let's talk a little bit about what this tells us about our Lord Jesus Christ. We see, first of all, how He honors a godly marriage. There have been those in the history of the church, even evidently in New Testament times, forbidding marriage. 
That's a doctrine of demons. Paul puts it that way to Timothy. And yet Jesus here, the one who had a part in ordaining marriage, because he's the second person of the Godhead, he visits them, he fellowships with them, he blesses them by his presence at this wedding. Marriage is good, Hebrews 13, 4 says, and to be honored by all men. Let me just tell you, young people, and remind those of you who are already married, the best addition you can ever make to your marriage is not your wedding band, it's not a $500,000 house, it's not a job with a huge 401k, it is the very presence of Christ in your marriage. I mean, we want the American dream. What's left of it? We want freedom, all those things. But the best addition you can make in your marriage, to your marriage, is the Lord Jesus Christ. His presence in your marriage. He's the glue that keeps husband and wife together. In fact, marriage, Ephesians 5 says that it, it is a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. And so our marriages, husbands and wives, can and should be a picture of the gospel of Christ. But also we see Christ's glory here. Um, This miracle confirms what chapter 1 has already said about him. Uh, Remember John's purpose for writing. He says, these things are written that you may um, know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So these are the evidences that point to the sonship of Jesus as the Son of God. You see his power over creation. He takes water and turns it into wine. Even in his humiliation, you know, part of the humiliation of Christ was his coming and taking upon human flesh. Philippians 2 talks about that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so even if his glory here is veiled, they get a glimpse of his glory, as we're told in verse 11. He manifested, he declared it, he revealed it. His glory. Simply by performing this this miracle. And this miracle has its intended effect there at the end of verse 11. His disciples believed in Him. This miracle, in part, was designed to produce and strengthen faith in His disciples, those who would be later called Christians. And notice, too, something about his own glory there. How he says in verse 4, My hour has not yet come. Jesus was fully aware, I believe, his whole life of that hour. And there is nothing that would cause him to depart from going to that hour. His will was the Father's will. In other words, the Father's will, He made His will. Thy will be done. And so how many of us today are asking that question, Lord, what is Your will for my life? What do You want me to do? Versus our own uh, desires and goals. We should be praying 
Not that we have the hour that Christ had, but that his will, the Father's will, be our will. And this surely is part of the glory of Christ. We see his grace here. Um, Jesus eats and drinks with sinners. He identifies with his people in high places, we'll see, but also in low places and everywhere in between. He desires fellowship and communion with us. He sat down. He visited this party at this wedding. You say, but does, does, does God, does Christ Jesus really desire my presence? Does he desire my fellowship? And I say, yes, that's why he went to the cross. So that our fellowship and communion with him might be restored forever. That's called reconciliation. We've been granted, 2 Corinthians 5, the ministry of reconciliation. And Jesus here, He's patient, I think, in the way He deals with Mary and these people. They don't know exactly who He is. And so, over time, He reveals who He is to them patiently, as a teacher would. But we see this as well. At just the right time, He supplies our needs and so much more. They were in a quandary. And perhaps we look at this today and we think, ah, they just ran out of wine. Couldn't they use some water? This this was a quandary for them. Dilemma. And Mary knows where to go. She knows who to talk to. Do you know who to talk to? Do you know where to go when problems come your way? Who do you run to? Do you run to this expert over here? Do you run to this person? To this source, this source? Or do you flee to God? And do you flee to Christ? In prayer. That's what we should do. And Mary trusted Him that she, after she had made her request known to Him, she trusted that He was going to work it out the way He saw fit because she tells the servants, whatever He says... To you, do it. And so when we go to Christ and we go to our Father in prayer, do we trust Him to work things out in the best way that is possible? His will, not our will. He supplies our needs and more. Uh, Mary, it's been said, instinctively knew where to turn. And she trusted Him as should we today. And He brings so much more than just our needs. You know? Sometimes we we get steak. Or whatever food it is you like. And here, Christ brings joy to this way. He brings fellowship to the table and as he says in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you. In John 10, he says the thief comes in to steal and destroy. He says, but I come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Jesus has come to give us eternal life, no doubt, but also to give us a life that is full 
that is full of joy. And so Jesus, as he produces this wine through this miracle, he's no kill joy. I'm sure he loved to laugh, even though he's called the man of sorrows. He felt the weight of a fallen world upon his shoulders. But Jesus brings the fruit of the Spirit to our lives, and that fruit includes joy. As Christians, we should be full of joy. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And who is at the right hand right now? The Lord Jesus, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Where is your pleasure to be found? It is in the Lord. It is at the right hand of God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see. And as far as this kingdom that Christ will bring and has brought already, we learn something about it. Now, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 14, 17, he says that the kingdom of God is not eating, eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I think his point is there, there are things more important in the kingdom of God, such as righteousness, peace, and joy that only God brings by means of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that with the whole wine thing going on. Uh, in the Bible, did you know that the Bible, it presents to us a metaphor for our salvation? And that is wine. It says in Isaiah 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without honey or without money and without price. The point is, we are offered this free, delightful, and eternal salvation as beggars. And God gives us the best. Wine, milk, and honey. In Jeremiah 31 and verse 12, talking about the new covenant, the covenant that brings us the gospel, that brings us Jesus, it says, They will come and shout for joy. On the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and they will never languish again. And of course, as Christians today, we look forward to that meal to come, that celebration to come, Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this morning, do you know what the joy of the Lord is? Do you have this joy of the Lord, the fruit of the Spirit, one of the byproducts and gifts of salvation that comes from Christ Himself to you? And do you know this joy even when things aren't going so well? Even in the midst of a trial, you may have this joy because you know the joy of heaven to come. Where there are no tears, no suffering, no ailments, but only righteousness, peace, and joy. And sinner, that's all of us. But you who have never come to Christ 
Are you communing with the Lord Jesus in this way? Do you have fellowship with the living God? That's why he sent Jesus to come. In Amos 3, in verse 3, it says, How can two walk together unless they be agreed? The answer is they can't. But what has happened? Our sins, Isaiah tells us, our sins have separated us from our God. And so what's the solution? It is to agree that we have sinned, to confess our sins to the living God. That if Romans 10.9 puts it this way, that if I confess, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our own hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And dear Christian, are you communing with Christ? Are you fellowshipping with Christ? Are you feasting on the Word of Christ? And are you drinking from His Spirit? In that way. And does it result in joy? And then I'll ask you, dear beloved, are you able to come to the table this morning to have fellowship with Christ and with your brothers and sisters in Christ? If there's something preventing you to come, Christian, then repent, confess it, seek the Lord's forgiveness, and come. This is the Lord of glory we serve. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your provision for us in the Lord Jesus Christ that You not only give us life, You give us life eternal, You give us life abundantly in the Lord Jesus. We thank You for Your Spirit, that guarantee who produces joy in us even now, this side of heaven. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.